entrepreneurs, business owners, professionals who seek excellence, bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builder Show. Here's Marty Wolf. We still got a long way to go. Yes, we all got a long way to go. Welcome to the Business Builder Show with Marty Wolf. The show for entrepreneurs, business owners, and business leaders. I'm Marty Wolf, your host for the Business Builders Show, and along with my executive producer, D.C. Taylor, we will be your guides on this learning journey. Let me tell you my super objective in being with you today. I want to enthusiastically share stories and information to inspire leaders. That's you, by the way, so you can inspire others. My guest with me today is coming back, because I love him and his work so much, is Sean Askinosi. Hi, Sean. Welcome back. Hi, Marty. Good to be back. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to do a very brief intro, and because as we talk, uh, you'll all hear all about Sean and his work and all that kind of good stuff. But let's start this way. Askinosi Chocolate um, recently was named by Forbes quote, one of the 25 best small companies in America. Askinosi Chocolate has also been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, on Bloomberg, MSNBC, and numerous other national and international media outlets. Sean Askinosi was named by O, the Oprah magazine, quote, one of the 15 guys who are saving the world well, Sean, you hit the big time. Now you're on the Business Builder Show. <laughs> <laughs> right, That's buddy? It. Of course. <laughs> of course. All right. So let's uh, let's kind of start at the beginning, I guess. So Askinosi Chocolate, tell me about your company and kind of how did you get there? So let's talk about that to start. You bet. Well, uh, I was a criminal defense lawyer for 20 years, and I specialized in really serious felony cases loved the courtroom, loved everything about it until I stopped loving it. And I, I, I think 20 years is a good term of service. Mm. And, and uh, I needed to find something else to do. And I, I couldn't find anything, having a lot of trouble really finding uh, something that would be inspiring and would really uh, be a project that I could be passionate about. I tried other areas of the law that didn't work. Um, looked at all kinds of businesses. This was a five-year-long process of trying to figure out what I was going to do next, and I had no idea it would take that long at the time. And it was it was a struggle for me during those five years. And but I started to have some hobbies because hobbies it's a good idea, you know, to have something else, something besides mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. So I started um, grilling on my big green egg, and then I bought another one. And then I just did a lot of that. And then I started baking, made tons of cupcakes. <laughs> and then I started making chocolate desserts. And one day I was driving to a relative of a distant funeral. And even though I'd been working with chocolate, I had no idea where it came from. But this idea came to me, hey, what about just making chocolate from scratch? Not knowing anything where it came from. But within three months of that idea, I was in the Amazon <laughs> and studying how farmers influence the flavor of chocolate by how they grow these cocoa beans. And, and um, parenthetically, I would say I just got back from the Amazon two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was my 43rd origin trip since I started the business. 
Um, but that's how it started. And then now here we are. We have 17 full-time employees, and us, we're a very small company and by design. Mm-hmm. And, and we sell our chocolate all over the United States. You know, I, I like, um, well, I like everything you're doing, but the, that journey, that five-year journey, uh, part of that journey was, I guess I'll call it a spiritual journey. A- am I correct in that? Talk to me a little bit about that. Trappist monks and things like that. Talk to me a little bit about that. Right. The, um, th- it was a spiritual journey at the time. I didn't, it, it was almost a, a spiritual journey by force or mm. by default because mm. I was desperate and I, at that time, was really experiencing some depression and anxiety uh, related to all of this. And so it seemed like the harder I tried to find my next thing, the further out of reach it was. And that was mm. really just, um, you know, day by day, a lot of difficulty. And so during this time period, I um, decided to go to a nearby Trappist monastery um, in southern Missouri, and uh, the reason I went there is because it was the place where my dad spent his last night on this earth. And he, mm. when I was young, he died of lung cancer, and he mm. was my hero. And and anyway, he'd been on a men's retreat at this church, and then, or sorry, at this abbey, and he came home and died. And uh, so I thought, fast forward the tape, twenty five years. Um, for those of your listeners who don't know what tape is, it's a thing we used to have back a long time ago. But anyway, um, and uh, and I went to that monastery, and it was really um, part of the the threshold that I talk about that yeah. really yeah. really helped me. It really, and so I have a lot. I, now I have a twenty year relationship with that monastery, and I'm a family brother there, and it's influenced every aspect of my life yeah. and my business. Yeah, incredible. And uh, in 2017, I think there was the year you published your book. The book title is Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. When did you decide to write the book, and, and what kind of inspired you, or what was the desire behind writing this book? What was driving that? The, the, the first thing that drove it was in all candor, an agent. Um, okay. That's so right. I, I, I had, I'd been approached by a number of people over the years to do that, uh, to write a book. And I never really felt led to do it. And I also never really talked to an agent that I thought was really credible, if I could say <laughs> that. And, uh, um, and this person was, and, um, and the person who introduced me to her, uh, was a real inspiration to me and had written several books. And so I thought, well, this, this is a real possibility. And then, uh, I would say there was also a countervailing struggle with, um, my spiritual director at the Abbey, who, who I write a lot about in the book ha- said to me, he's a very wise man and in, in his uh, mid eighties, upper eighties. Now he said, you know, I've never felt called to write a book. I've, I felt called to live it out. And this is a guy who, if he wanted to, could have written 30 books, you mm-hmm. know, but mm-hmm. and that, that really, that really stuck with me. And so, um, I, it had to really just be the right place, right time. Mm-hmm. And it took three years and it was with my daughter, my mm-hmm. co-author Lauren. Right. And, um, and so, and I was running a business at the same time. Yeah. 
you know, traveling all over the world buying cocoa beans. But it was a great, you know, all in all, it was a great experience. I'm so glad that I did it. And uh, I I wouldn't have changed anything. And I wouldn't have written a book sooner because I probably wouldn't have had very much to say. Well, I'm glad you wrote the book, too, because that's how we started our relationship. And uh, you know I love the book and I follow what you do and all that kind of good stuff. Has anything surprised you since the release of the book? Um, comments, I'm sure there's been lots of comments. Has anything, any responses re- uh, surprised you in terms of feedback on the book? I think one of the things I do is I catalog the people who write me about the book. And I, I, I told myself before the book came out what my measure of success was going to be. And that was... Um, people writing me who said that they'd read it and that it had influenced them in some way related to some action that they took small or large. Mm. And, um, so I would say maybe not so much surprise, but, um, I would say, um, heartened or, or grateful Mm -hmm. that that, that has come true. And so I have really, um, I've really enjoyed hearing from people who've read it and, just for whatever reason, decided to share with me what it is that moved them in the book to some action. And then, and that will often lead to a dialogue. And, um, I've, I've really, really enjoyed that. And I, I, and I think I've enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Mm. And in, in some cases I've just asked for a phone number and picked up the phone and called the person, um, in some way to, if, if I could be of some assistance in some way, you know, I mean, I'm not a coach or anything like that, but, but I have really enjoyed those conversations and maybe been of some help in some ways. How, how rewarding is that? (laughs) So my guest is Sean Askinosi. He is with Askinosi chocolate. The book we're talking about is meaningful work, a quest to do great business, find your calling and feed your soul. You want to get the book, you want to follow Ask an OC Chocolate. Sean is on most social media, definitely on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and probably on Twitter, I'm assuming. Um, so, sure. So you're you're there. I'm seeing you, and I'm grateful to see all, everything you're doing there. So along the way, apparently an opportunity came along to do a TEDx talk. So... Uh, give me the backstory there. How'd that happen? <laughs> and what was that like? And let's get into the content in a minute. Yeah. Well, the, um, the people, there was an organizer of a TEDx conference in Oklahoma city who'd read my book and that led he and his committee to reach out to me and ask if I'd be interested in doing a TEDx talk, uh, in Oklahoma city. And so that's how it all started. And, um, and it was a really long process in terms of, and Mm -hmm. there's a whole, um, inside part of Ted X that I I had no idea. It's very organized and I had to have a Ted X coach. I was really happy about that. I loved that experience and he was just amazing. And I had to have the script approved. It had to be word for word. I had to memorize the whole thing. 15 minutes, no notes, no Mm -hmm. prompts, no PowerPoint, no images, nothing. Oh, and I'm 58 years old and memorizing stuff like that doesn't come as easy as it did when I was in high school. And uh, so that the process in itself, 
uh, and they, they, my coach said, if I'd like for this talk to be, if you were going to give a talk of a lifetime and this was going to be it, what would it be? And that changed the game for me mm. and I really hard on it. And I spent several months and I have to say that, um, and my wife really helped me. She helped me edit this thing and she listened to me give it hundreds of times. <laughs> and, um, she was just very patient and really helpful with me. And, and because of the content, which I know we're going to talk about the, the biggest surprise for me. And I mean, I, I wrote the book and it took three years to write the book and this writing this talk and preparing for it took, you know, maybe three or four intensive months, if not longer than that. And, um, I was surprised how the content of the talk wound its way through my body. So I had a lot of physical difficulties during the preparation of this talk. And it's it's a really deep talk and it really has had a lot of effect on me, but I didn't know that it would, I, I mean, it was like someone at night or during the day even just put my whole interior soul in a Vitamix and just, you know, turned it on high. And, uh, I didn't expect that. And, and I was in, so I I was, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I don't know that I'll ever do it again, (laughs) but, um, cause that's pretty much it, you know? And, uh, and, but, but I was glad to get it over with too. Um, because it was hard. It was hard to do. It was pretty hard. Well, starting, uh, Chocolate coming from scratch, <laughs> from you know, uh, is not a day at the beach either. And writing a book isn't a sure. day at the beach. But obviously, you're removed. And if I get this right, I believe the title of the talk is "Find Your Calling Where It Hurts." Is that correct? Right. So let me repeat that because I want to make sure everybody understands the very title of your presentation: "Find Your Calling Where It Hurts." You talk about a threshold. Let's start there, if you're okay with that, uh, Sean. You talk about a threshold in your TEDx talk. Explain what you mean by that. The word, the use of the word threshold, I I got from poet philosopher John O'Donohue. And um, he, I love all of the books and works by John O'Donohue, but I like in particular his, his discussion about um, how about thresholds mm-hmm. and in what in particular what I'm talking about in this threshold in the context of this talk is that many of us find our lives not at the beginning of one thing and the ending of another but in the middle mm-hmm. between that space between uh, I can't do this job anymore and here I've now started this new career or started a new place or I've been, I've been reaffirmed in the place that I'm already at. And this is a threshold. Mm. And I think it's a, it's a place that's worthy of a great, um, um, review, reflection, meditation, prayer. And many of us find ourselves there and, and sometimes they can be uh, quite lengthy and they can be turbulent and can also be, you know, just a great deal of sorrow. Yeah, threshold, transition, um, whatever the right words are. Um, you've set it up uh, brilliantly, and you really you are talking about passion. We get to the part in your TEDx talk 
where you talk about where do we find our passion, and I think you use the words, it's an intersection of your skill sets, what the world needs, and our passion. Um, I think most of us can understand skill sets and what the world needs. Let's talk about passion, and you have an extraordinarily unusual and insightful view of how to find your passion. Let me say the title of his talk again to set this up. Find your calling where it hurts. So talk to me about what you talked about in your TEDx talk. Sure. As you as you stated, I think a lot of us know or we can articulate our, our skills, talents, and what the world needs. But when you're looking for that intersection, well, where does all of that cross over with passion? I find that many people don't know where their passion is. That's that's the real trouble spot because we can't fit it in the Google search box. We could, but what's, what's it going to say? You know, ask Siri, mm-hmm. what is my passion? Or ask Alexa, what is my passion? It just doesn't work. And so that requires a great um, deal of, if I could call it maybe uncovering and interior work. Mm-hmm. And and so for me, uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the harder I tried to find it, the further out of reach it was. And so what I decided to do was look at the sorrow in my life because I had this this unwitting unwitting um, suspicion that my inability to find my passion was related to the grief in my life and the sorrow. And so I I I, I talk about this in the book and I talked about this a lot in the TEDx talk and and that is the quote from uh, poet philosopher Khalil Gibran that I love which is our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. Mm. Our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And that was the exploration for me. That was the that was the pathway for me to begin to get to the other side of the threshold. And as I mentioned, you know, well, for me, my greatest sorrow so far was my dad's sickness and death and and his lung cancer. And that was a, a, a great sorrow for me and being with him when he died and all of that experience with the church. And, and that was, it was just really traumatic for me as a 13 year old, you know, giving my dad pain shots of Demerol when he couldn't um, do it himself. And my mom couldn't bring herself to do it. And I did that as a 13 year old. And, and then to have the church people say, don't talk with your dad about death because if you do, it'll be a sign of doubt and he won't be healed. Mm. That was traumatic. And so, um, what I, what I talk about in the, in this TEDx is that I had to kind of explore my own broken heart. And now we're getting to the part of where does it hurt? And so for me, I had to do something to explore that. And so, and, and this, this, what I'm talking about now, this is the most important part. And anybody can do this. Anybody who has had or has a broken heart. And if you don't have a broken heart, then please call me and we need to have a one hour discussion about mm. how we can, how we can uh, break your heart because that's, you got to live life and love and grief are just two sides of the same coin. And so anyway, so for me, the way to explore it wasn't to read about it. it because we all, I mean, I love to read. I'm reading five books at a time. And, and, but reading about it doesn't make us 
better at it. It doesn't, it doesn't really solve the problems for us. We need to do something. We need to take action. And so for me, the action as it related to where it hurt and my own broken heart was that I ended up becoming a volunteer while I was practicing law in the palliative care department of a local huge hospital. So on Fridays, I'd go visit people who were dying. Palliative care is just basically hospice in the hospital. And I would visit them on Fridays when I was in town. And these were people who'd asked for a visit and, and they were in some stage of dying. And the, um, the way it worked was I would just go into their room and just talk to them as a volunteer from the hospital and just Mm-hmm. A lot of them didn't have anybody there, so I talked about whatever, pie recipes, hunting, fishing, mm-hmm. the younger days. And then at the end of my visit, I would always ask them if they wanted me to pray for them. And I I sort of half-jokingly say that one of the things I learned is that most people who are dying will take a prayer mm-hmm. if offered. And, I, and this is the key, and this is, again, taking it a little bit deeper. I asked them, what would you like me to pray for? So I didn't just assume what they wanted, even after a long conversation. I wanted to hear from them. What would you like me to pray for? And I listened, and I prayed their words back to them, word for word. I would ask if I could you know, touch their hand or their shoulder while I prayed for them using their own words. And that was very powerful. Mm-hmm. They would say, you know, could you pray that I live two more weeks to my 60th wedding anniversary, or could you pray that... I die today because I'm in pain. And I just, I listened and just prayed their prayer. And then not every time, but many times I would leave the front door of the hospital and walk to my car. And there were times when I felt like my feet weren't on the ground, mm. that they were like three or four feet above the ground. And at first it was really confusing about well, what's happening here. And uh, what the what's happening is, is that that's what joy feels like. That's what immeasurable joy feels like. That's what it feels like when you uncover the greatest sorrow in your life. That's what Gibran was talking about. And it, the uncovering of that turns into joy. And people, this is, I think, where people get tripped up, even with my, with my book and with the talk. And this is, this is it right here. People say, wait, what does that have to do with chocolate? Walking out to your car and feeling that joy, or why didn't you just become a hospital chaplain? It's because that work, that uncovering was a bridge for me, and it, that kind of thing can be a bridge for many people. It was a bridge. Mm. It, was, it, was the, it was the end of that part of the threshold. And so it, do, do, doing that work for almost five years um, allowed me the space to consider other options in my life that nothing else could have done. No book, no workshop or seminar or conference or friend or Google or anything could have done for me. It Mm. was that service to someone who needed me in that moment. And I was in the right place at the right time. That that's how I did it. Doing focusing on someone else other than yourself was your main message in the TEDx talk. So my guest is Sean Askinosi. He is the president and CEO of Askinosi Chocolate. Yes, he does sell chocolate too, and lots of it. It was a wonderful job. You can go to askinosichocolate.com to learn more. His book, again, is Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. And yes, 
you can get his TEDx TEDx talk. And in case you're not under, hearing exactly how I'm saying the last name, is it's spelled A S K I N O S I E. Sean Askinosi. I think if you just Google his name, a TEDx Oklahoma City, you will find um, the talk. It is powerful. You can tell just by the tone of uh, Sean's voice and how he delivers his message. This guy is the real deal. So there's some kind of light, late-breaking news that you want to share here and uh, something that's kind of current. It has to do with the Washington Post, I guess. Tell me about that. What's that all about, Sean? Sure. The, um, the Washington Post um, published a, a really important article, investigative piece, last week called Coco's Child Laborers. And this is very important to anyone. It should be important to anyone who likes chocolate. And that's a lot of people. That's $25 billion worth of, of business in the United States this year. And so um, it's important for people to check out the Washington Post article about child labor in the cocoa industry. And the article, in a nutshell, is essentially saying that the big chocolate companies of the world, um, the ones that you would imagine, uh, Mars, Nestle, Hershey, um, have, and others, um, have not kept their promises with regard to the elimination of child labor, child slave labor in their chocolate businesses. And this is a big deal. These are little kids who are being held essentially as slaves. And when this first came up, people were asking us just that day, you know, last week, what are you doing? And the answer is that, you know, I've been doing this business for almost 14 years. I have personally visited the farmer groups every single year that I've bought beans from the farmer groups in Tanzania, the Philippines, Ecuador, and the Amazon. And I, as I mentioned, I just got back from the Amazon a couple of weeks ago. It was my 43rd origin trip. I visit these farms, and I can say that not one on not one single visit to any farm in all these years have I ever witnessed anything remotely resembling child labor. Mm. And I have a, a provision in my contract with the farmers that they're not to um, use child labor. It's, it's in a, so it's been important to us from the beginning. And it's one of the reasons why we practice what we call direct trade, because I can control this. I go there, I inspect the beans, I make sure they meet our quality specs, I make sure they're not using pesticides and chemicals, and I also make sure that they're not using child labor. And so this, the, the, at the end of the day, what this really is, other than a very sad, terribly unjust situation, is it's an economic situation. Mm -hmm. And that it means like this, that the, the commodity price for cocoa has, when adjusted for inflation, has remained unchanged in the last 30 years. Wow. That means that farmers in Ghana and Ivory Coast, where, by the way, most of this child labor problem is in West Africa, where almost the vast majority of beans, cocoa beans come from over 70% of the world's supply comes from there. And that's where this issue is. And those farmers, and this, this is what I'm about to say. This is it. This is the most important thing. Farmers in Ghana and Ivory coast for the most part are living on a dollar a day. That is well below the United Nations definition of extreme poverty. It's also in the countries where the government regulates the price of cocoa in Ghana and Ivory coast uh, to ostensibly protect farmers, but they don't. These are corrupt regulatory bodies in West Africa. And so these companies need to step up their game and they need to eliminate this 
terrible, you know, this terrible, terrible thing mm -hmm. as soon as possible mm -hmm. because um, people should not be buying chocolate uh, if they know that it's been made with child labor. So the and Washington this, Washington Post story, tell me again the title of the Washington Post story. Yeah. Yes, it's called Coco's Child Laborers, and it was um, published last week. If we go onto your website, can we find your uh, either LinkedIn or your website uh, some comments that you that you have you, made on this? On yes, this, uh, you can go to the Askenosi Chocolate Facebook page and find uh, my comments and a really short video. Um, and the article came out on June fifth last week mm -hmm. in the Washington Post, and our response was uh, the following day last week. Well, wow, DC Taylor, wow, huh? Yes. Guy wow. kind of leaves you speechless. <laughs> yeah. I'm rarely speechless. <laughs> so, yeah. so Sean Askinosi has been my guest. Again, his book is Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul. You can find Sean Askinosi's TEDx talk at TEDx, or his name, 10X, Oklahoma City, and you can find the article that we've just been talking about. And so I said at the beginning of the show that Sean was named by O, the Oprah magazine, in quotes, this says, one of the 15 guys who are saving the world. Sean Askinosi, I'm proud that you're a friend. Thank you so much for being part of the show again. Well, thank you, Marty. Thank you for what you do and this, this wonderful opportunity to have a conversation again. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Business Builders Show. To learn more about me, and I'm Marty Wolf, go to MartyWolfBusinessSolutions.com. That's MartyWolfBusinessSolutions.com. To learn more about Kelly Hoey, go to her website, which is jkellyhoey.co. That's jkellyhoey.co. And, of course, you can find Kelly and Marty on LinkedIn and Twitter. A reminder, you can find all our Business Builders shows on iTunes, Spotify, and on your favorite podcast app. Bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builders Show with Marty Wolf.